people want to belong to something, and it's really interesting to observe the things around which people gather and form groups and form communities. There's a study I read about this last week, studying how millennials are doing that, how they're trying to find togetherness and belonging in community. And the study looked at the ways that they're doing it, ways that traditionally people find those things in, in religions, but the millennials are largely ah-religious. And so they find that togetherness in groups that promote the arts, in, in nonprofit organizations, in meditation centers, even in exercise classes like SoulCycle and CrossFit. And the researchers found this phrase commonly, CrossFit is my church, or SoulCycle is my cult. But it's not just the millennials. Previous generations are increasingly likely to bond with people over other things, less likely to be in church on a Sunday and maybe attending their kids or, or grandkids' sports teams and finding community in the, the gathering of parents. I watched a, a special a couple years ago, one of the Super Bowls. They had a special before there about this family and the group of people that they met with every Sunday to watch this particular football team. And they would tailgate together and they would sit in the same section together. And they said some of the same things. They said, this is our church. These are the people that we belong to. Says something when they're using the word church to describe that type of belonging and relationships. You can find organizations of people based on, on any interest under the sun blacksmithing, gardening, cooking, stamp collecting, scrapbooking, whatever it is, any sports endeavor, and people are organizing themselves and, and investing in that. It's just as interesting, though, to notice how those groups change over time, how, how they even dissolve over time. Uh, several years ago in high school, I was a part of a soccer team. We traveled abroad and I met some of these guys in the airport or on the airplane and some guys for the first time in the practice field when we were there. So for two weeks, though, we were a team, and we did everything together. We did the whole soccer training and tournament experience and then experiencing all the different cultural things where we were at, and then it was done. And I could maybe tell you two of the guys' names now. Uh, I don't, have never kept in touch with any of them after that. We had a shared experience, a shared interest, but that did not live beyond that. Maybe you remember that a little bit with high school or college. When you were in the middle of it, some of you are in the middle of it now. That's your reality, that's your world. These are your friends, your best friends, and you imagine they will be for the rest of your life. And some of you might have relationships that have carried on, but, but by and large, we don't. We, we catch up at reunions, but so much has changed. The relationship is just not there. Maybe the other end of the spectrum, maybe you're a person who really doesn't want to belong to anybody or to anything. Maybe you'd rather just have a cabin in the woods and never have to interact with another person for the rest of your life. If I could confess something to you, I, I, I do find, kind of think of myself somewhat as an introvert. 
I'm not on the market for a cabin in the woods, don't get me wrong. Um, but I might lean that way, you know, rather than go to a party, I might rather, you know, stay at home and read a book or work on the house or do something. Uh, so it's an interesting career choice to, to be a, a pastor. Uh, but the ideas here of, of relationships, belonging, let's look at what the very first church was like. The book of Acts chapter 2. What does it have to say? What does it have to offer to that deep-seated human need to belong to something, to connect with people? Or the opposite impulse, to pull back from people. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to read a portion here in chapter 2, and then we'll move to chapter 4. So if you follow along with me, we'll start in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's flip over to chapter 4 for me. Some things happen in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Some things that might shake up the church a little bit, but we still find a very similar summary at the end of chapter 4 in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Pray with me about these words. God, we thank you for these clear pictures of the work that you were doing in the very first church thousands of years ago. And we pray that they would instruct us, they would give us a clear idea of the reality that you want to be in the church. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This church, this gathering of believers, primarily, maybe even exclusively, Jewish people who were living in Jerusalem or were visiting Jerusalem at the time uh, when Jesus died on the cross at the Feast of Passover, was raised again, and then during the festival of Pentecost, 40 days later, 50 days later rather, So a large portion of these people were actually not from Jerusalem. They had come to visit. In Acts 2, there's a whole list of all the different regions that they came from, all the different languages they spoke. And they are all now believers following this Jesus, and they're sticking around. They're not going home. They're trying to figure out what's next. Do we stay here and be a part of this? This is where where the the church is right now in Jerusalem. Do we go home? And we see how that develops later on in the book of Acts. But for right now, they're just together. And they're spending their time together. They're uh, investing in, in each other. And we want to see what that reality looks like. We see 
in these pictures, I want us to see that the reality of this church and the church is unearthly unity and inexpressible joy. That the reality of the church is unearthly unity and inexpressible joy. And I don't mean to just use flowing words and and nice flowery pictures of of words. Uh, Hopefully we can understand what each of those means in this text. The reality of the church, first of all, is this unearthly unity. And we see this, first of all, in their relationships. They're described as having fellowship, breaking of bread in Acts chapter 2, says they devoted themselves to a few things. They devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. There's a suggestion that, that that breaking of bread alludes to communion, and I think there's at least an allusion to that. That's part of the story. But it also just means that they're having meals together. We see down in verse 46, they're gathering in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes They're spending time in each other's homes. This could be at least a little bit, you know, those who lived in Jerusalem or nearby were sharing and caring with those who were from out of town, giving them a place to come and eat. But they were having hospitality, having relationships, interacting with each other. There was a, a social dimension to this gathering. It wasn't just a collection of individual people who had confessed Jesus as Lord and were just milling about in the temple in Jerusalem. They were joining together. There is this relationship. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, it says, the full number of those who believed describes them as having one heart and soul. There is unity there. If we just leave it there, that could describe a bunch of things. that They gather together, they have relationships, they share lunches and meals, and they have this sense of being one, a, a unity of heart and soul. We could... That could be your CrossFit class. That could be uh, your, your, your mom's group over there. That could be your, your hobby club over here. What's different about this? What makes this unique? What makes this an unearthly unity? There's a spiritual dimension here. They aren't gathering just because they want to be friends. They're gathering because they were devoted to truth a truth that they all shared. They were devoted, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. We talked about that last week. This defined them. Down in verse 44 of chapter 2, it says, all who believed were together. They were defined by what they believed, what truth held them together. They were called believers. This description we mentioned them being of one heart and mind. That's not just a, 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 a nice flowery word picture. That's not just them saying they're best buds or, or bosom friends. They're, this is describing that they were of one another. Their hearts were one anothering. They were fulfilling the one another commands that God gave them, that you love your neighbor as yourself. They were of one heart and mind. So they were not just confessing the same truths, but they were living them out in their fellowship, in their relationships. What Jesus had told them to do, they were doing with each other. And even this idea of fellowship we talked about, not just a general social term 
It has a spiritual dimension to it. One of the commentators that I checked this week defined it this way. Fellowship is the spiritual duty of believers to stimulate each other to holiness and faithfulness. It's not just shared interests and shared experience. It's a relationship with, with a goal in mind that we are together building each other up, stimulating each other to holiness and faithfulness. So fellowship in the church is not just potlucks and picnics and softball games and golf outings. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. I love those things. And as we are a body, as we are a family, we, we do things together. We can have fun activities together. And, and those help facilitate the relationships that we want to invest in. It's not, fellowship is not just those things, though. It includes those things, but it's more than that. It builds on that. It's with a spiritual direction in mind. See, we could be a collection of couple hundred people that get along really well. We could have really good relationships. We could, we could take care of each other, how this is described. We'll get to that in a minute. We could have uh, really good ethnic diversity. We could have a really good presence in the community and have great programs that are a lot of fun. But if we're not unified around the truth, the apostles' teaching, if we're not devoted to that, then we're not a church or a social club. I'll take that one step further. We can have all those things, the relationships, the public profile. We can have the fun activities. And we could come and hear good teaching. But if we aren't fellowshipping in that teaching, if our relationships are not living and growing in the truth that binds us all together, then we're not doing church right. If you can come into the church and hear God's word, but you don't hear anyone else talk to you, or you don't talk to anyone else, then we're not doing church right. We must be fellowshipping in this truth. We must be a fellowship in Christ. That's an implication for both the body and the individual. If you come in and, and don't talk to anyone, you're not fellowshipping in Christ. If someone can come in and we don't talk to them, then we're not doing church right. Let's see a little bit more how this plays out. See, the church describes as being devoted to fellowship, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to communion. We're going to do all those things tonight. Pastor Matt mentioned we have a communion service tonight. If you want to be devoted to Bible and prayer and communion, tonight is a night you can do all of that. Please join us. And they met for that, and they, they met to listen to the apostles and the apostles were teaching them, and that was the beginning of the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus said, make disciples, teach them everything that I've commanded them, commanded you. And so they were teaching, the apostles were teaching, and there were people listening, but it didn't just stay there. It wasn't just the apostles' job or just the, the pastor's job, and we alluded to this even last week, talking about we don't just listen to the gospel, then we go and proclaim the gospel. And there was somewhat of an a, a emphasis more on proclaiming it to those who don't know but it doesn't just stay there. We have the responsibility even to teach truth and fellowship in the truth and speak truth to each other inside the church and build each other up. That's the design. Ephesians 4 tells us this. It doesn't just stay with the apostles and the pastors. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers 
not to just teach everybody so that they know everything, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. How truth works in our church to build us up is not just from one or two few select people speaking the truth and passing on the, the apostles' teaching. It's all of us speaking that truth together. As the New Testament goes on, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us we should not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. And in Colossians 3, we're commanded, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How can the word of Christ dwell in us richly? How can we be devoted to the apostles' teaching richly? How? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. He also gives us a, a specific application of how we can do this. This is not the only way, but this is a great way. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing together, when we gather and sing, we're teaching each other. We're confessing truths together. I encourage you, listen to that teaching in those songs. Know what you're teaching when you're singing that song. Listen to the person next to you who is saying, I'm right there with you. Teach each other when we're singing and other ways too. I want to get back to more of that in a minute. I want to add a few more thoughts and qualifications about what this unity looks like. But I want to look at one other thing first. We see an unearthly unity described in their relationships. So they have relationships that are not like anything else that they have experienced. We also see it in their generosity. There's an unearthly unity pictured in their generosity with each other. They're having each other in their homes. They're sharing bread together. In verse 44 of chapter 2, it says they had all things in common. And that phrase is used again in chapter 4, verse 32. They had everything in common. It says they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Chapter 4, verse 34, mentions that again. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. They were responding to some very specific needs that they had in front of them as a church. Now, this is a, make just a, a side note here about how we look at the book of Acts. Uh, when, when we have a narrative, this is telling a story. We have a narrative in Scripture, whether it's here in the book of Acts, Old Testament narratives of the Gospels. We have to be careful that we, we read it correctly because narratives are telling us what happened. They aren't always telling us you should do that the same way. They're telling us this is what they did. It doesn't always tell us this is what you should do. There are narratives where we definitely don't do that. We, we don't uh, sacrifice babies. That's a narrative in the Old Testament. We don't do that. There are many clear ways that we don't do this. When we look at this, we want to understand the way that they were responding in their specific situation. We can still learn from from their example. So we want to draw that out here. See, they're responding to specific needs. They had people from all over the world coming from different regions 
who, who were there. They're kind of stuck until they knew what they're supposed to do. And they weren't at home. They didn't have all their belongings with them. They weren't at their jobs. They didn't have income coming in. And they had some specific needs. And those who were there in Jerusalem, who had houses and lands that they could just go and sell, they were going and doing that and putting those resources at the, the entire church's disposal. So there was a response to those specific needs on an individual level. But then it, it kind of grew into a whole other level. It grew to this, uh, th- th- this reality where everybody was then eventually contributing to, to the church at large, not just to individual needs. Uh, when they were selling things, they were bringing them to the apostles, and the apostles had this oversight of how to distribute it. And then in Acts chapter 6, we see they delegate that responsibility to the deacons. Uh, and then as Acts goes on, there are churches who are uh, organized, and they're supporting pastors, and they're supporting themselves through the collective giving of the entire church. So we have those two levels, like an individual response, and then the whole collective supporting of the church. And just to be clear, though, this is, this is not early stage communism. Uh, this is not even communal living. This is not, uh, to be a part of the church, you have to give up everything you have, and it becomes everybody's property. That's, that's not what's going on here. This is not compulsion. This is not mandatory. We don't see them being manipulated by fear or guilt. They're doing this willingly, lovingly. We don't see uh, the denial of personal property. If you look over in Acts chapter 5, the unfortunate story of Ananias and Sapphira, they handled this situation of, of selling and giving very poorly. But the issue was not that they kept some for themselves. The issue was that they lied about what they did. In, Acts, in chapter 5, verse 4, Peter actually says to them, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? He's saying it was, it was yours to do with what you wanted. You didn't even have to sell this. You just did, and then you lied about it. That was the problem. So this is not a, a, a denial of personal property. Uh, this is not early stage communism. What we can learn here is we, we see these believers, this early church, we see their, their theology on display. Their theology of materialism, their theology of things is on display here. And I want to call us to, to look at this and to evaluate our own theology of, of things, our own theology of giving as we do. See, their theology was not an earthly theology. It was unearthly generosity because of their, what they believed about the things that they owned. Scripture does tell us that God gives us many things, and he gives us many things even to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, and that's a, a command. Uh, it's in the, in the discussion of, of rich people. It's not saying, rich people, you need to get rid of everything. Rich people know that God gave you those things to enjoy. We have a good God who does us, and we, as Western 21st century believers probably know that more than anyone in history, that God has blessed us with many things to enjoy. It's not wrong to, to have a house that you enjoy living in and that you can decorate it the way you want to and you can renovate it the way you want it to be. It's not wrong to enjoy that the car that you drive or the two or three that you own. It's not wrong to, to have clothes that are nice and you like to wear or to have good food that you like to eat or to be able to subscribe to a 
a media service and, and have a couple hours in your week where you can devote and, and enjoy entertainment. Those are not wrong things. And when we do those, we have those things and we enjoy them, we can enjoy them in the right way with the right theology. But we need to know that that's not the only reason that God gives us things. Another reason, God gives us things to give them away. God gives us things so that we can give. We have their theology on display here, Acts chapter 4, and verse 32, it says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And again, that wasn't a call of a dissolution of personal property rights. They're, they're saying, I own these things, but I'm going to act like I don't own them. I, I, I own these things, but I'm not tied to them. I own these things, but they don't own me. And a, and a right theology of, of things should lead us to those same conclusions. We can, we can own things, we can enjoy the things that God has blessed us with, but they should not own us. They should, we should not be tied to them. We should own them and live like we don't, like we can let them go. This is what it means to count all things as loss that we read about and we sang about this morning because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord. So right theology should mean that we own things, we can enjoy them, but we're able to also not enjoy some things so that we can give. So what are some of the things that you enjoy that maybe you could enjoy less so that you could give? Subscription to entertainment, media, Maybe you could go without that for a couple months or a year so that you could enjoy the joy of giving to something else. Maybe you don't have to have a, a specialty coffee every day. It's not wrong to enjoy those. I, I guess I kind of think so. I don't like the taste of coffee at all. Um, it's not wrong, but maybe you can enjoy less of those so that you can enjoy the joy of giving to something else. There's one other thing sorry, a few more things. There's a dimension of this theology of things. We're talking about an unearthly theology of, of generosity. Uh, a great author I read talked about this. He described the idea we should have towards our, our things and our money as a, a wartime mentality. And I mentioned that phrase even a couple weeks ago, talking about how we should view the life we're living, wartime mentality. But he, he gives a specific example of that. He says, imagine yourself at the end of the Civil War living in the South, in Confederate states. You've been there, you've accumulated everything, you have riches in Confederate dollars. But you see the writing on the wall. You know the end is coming. And in a few months, Confederate states are going to cease to exist, and those dollars will be worthless. What's the wise thing to do? To take those dollars and invest them in something that will live past the end of the war. We are in that war. The world we live in, the life that we live is in this wartime. We need to understand that the things that we're rich in now are not going to live 
past the end of our days. They're the, the Confederate dollars that have an expiration date on them. But we have the opportunity to invest those in things that will live past the end of our days. To invest those in things that will be a part of the church growing, that will live past the end of our days, and will be a part of eternity. Invest in things that even will bring eternal rewards for, for you and lasting joy in being able to give of yourself. Your right theology of things takes this into account. It's unearthly, it's, it's heavenly theology. And the last thing to, to point out when we're talking about a theology of things, we give generously because God has been generous to us. I think the early church had a very recent memory of this. They were just weeks away from having seen Jesus die on the cross and understanding that that was for their sins, that, that God the Son was given for their sins. John three sixteen, for God so loved the whole world that he gave. Romans 8 describes it this way, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. The good things that we know that we can enjoy, we know that's coming from a good God because he gave us something that's far more important than that, something bigger and even more generous. He gave his own son for us. Of course he's gonna take care of our littler needs. God is a giving God. God has shared everything with us so that we can share with each other. Our generosity is based on God's generosity. Okay, now let me get back to my three qualifications I told you I was gonna say about these things, about the unity in relationships and the unity in generosity. Three qualifications. These are both outward descriptions of a reality, inside reality of the church. You can go to the doctor and the doctor will do a checkup on you. And he'll say, okay, your, your muscles look good, your skin looks healthy, your hair is growing. Those are all outward signs of an inner health. S same thing with baptism. That's an a outward sign of an inward reality, of a changed heart on the inside. These are outward signs uh, of a healthy body on the inside. And what is that body? The church is the body of Christ. Christ is the unity of the church. We sing that the church is one foundation is relationships. No, it's Jesus Christ, her Lord. This is the body of Christ and it flows with the blood of the gospel. When it does, these are the outward signs of that, that we have relationships with each other that are unlike any other relationships we have. Hopefully you, you, you've understood that and you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that even when you've gone overseas. Many of you probably have gone on missions trips and, and been to a, a church service in a different country. And you might not even understand their language. You certainly don't know their songs. And you don't know what to do next. But there's a bond that you have in Christ. Unlike anything else. You couldn't go to another person in that country down the road and have that unity. You have a unity in Christ. Maybe you've experienced that in, in some relationships you've had in, in the church. Uh, people that you might not have known or ever met or even got along with otherwise, but because you have something in common in Christ. Christy and I have been blessed with some relationships we had in the different churches we had. 
Um, a few of them that just stick out to us and that, you know, no matter where we are in the country, those are some of the favorite people that we have in, in, our, in our minds. And the interesting thing is, most of those relationships are people that are not of the same generation as us. I might not have ever gone to their house other than the fact that we had Christ in common. But, but they invested in us. They, they took care of us. We had a growing relationship in this fellowship of the gospel. And maybe you've noticed this is just an interesting observation. Sometimes when it's somebody that's not in your same age bracket or some, in your same stage of life or same shared interest, when those things aren't in common, sometimes the unity you have in Christ is, is that much more visible. You're not even in the same country, but you're, you're, you're there visiting on the, on the missions trip. You can see the only thing we have in common is Christ. And sometimes, sometimes when we have other things in common, other interests, that might make it less clear to see the unity you have in Christ. Maybe for good or ill, maybe it just happens that way, but maybe sometimes those other interests, the other things you have in common, cloud out the things that are most important, that, that unity and the faith. Okay, that's one qualification. This is the outward sign. This is not the reality. If we, if we go for if we pursue relationships and generosity, this unity, and we're not pursuing Christ, we're not going to get it. The unity we have is in Christ. It's like if you try to see how bright a star is, you can't look right at it. You have to look off to the side, and then, then it looks brighter. If you look right at it, it's dim. If we pursue relationships, we're not going to get them in the same way as if we pursue the unity we have in Christ. And then these relationships, then this generosity comes. Okay, second qualification there are formal and informal ways to do this. I already mentioned this a little bit in, in the giving. There are the two levels, the giving to individual needs, responding to individual needs. You see someone hurting, you have something that can meet their need. Uh, a lot of ways that we do this in the church, giving a meal to someone when, when they have something that is, you know, turned their life upside down for, for a while. Uh, gifts for, for baby showers, things like that meeting someone's individual needs. But then there's also the, the bigger level where we're collectively contributing to each other's needs. Um, we have a, a need to, to pay attention to that as a church. Uh, some things that as we go on this year with all the different dynamics we've faced throughout the year, uh, we, some things as, as members that we, we'll need to talk about. Um, we, we need to be aware of the needs around us on the individual level and, and the big picture level, contributing to the needs here that we are, are wanting to invest in the ministries here and the ministries that we support around the world. But there are those informal ways to do that too. And the same thing applies to fellowshipping with others in relationships, fellowshipping in the faith and the gospel that we have. We have formal ways of doing that. We have structures and, and programs to accomplish that. And that's kind of like a, a trellis that we're building. We have structure and organization. And we want the vine, we want the organic growth, the spiritual life of our church to grow on that. So we, so we build a support for that. We build some structure. That's why we have regular worship services at certain times every week. We have classes and we have a membership process and we have a building where we can meet and accomplish all those things. So those are the, these are the formal ways that we're trying to accomplish this. And maybe, maybe that's a part of what God wants you to do. Some of you are doing that already. It's not just, not just Pastor Matt and I teaching and, and fellowshipping in the gospel. Many of you are, are teaching. You're, you're sharing that truth as you're, you're in a class. You're helping out with the children's classes. 
Some other ways uh, you can consider maybe doing that in the future. We, we have Calvary kids. You can spend time speaking truth into young hearts. You can be a part of our men's and women's ministries. Right now we're studying what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a, a godly woman. And maybe even if you don't think I, you could get anything out of that, maybe you could come and, and speak truth into that. You could fellowship around what it means in your life as God has helped you grow in that and you can build in relationships with other people. But maybe it's not the formal ways. We also have a great need to do this in informal ways. We want that, grow, we want that vine to grow off of that structure, that trellis, and keep growing. We want you to talk about the shared faith you have when you leave the sermon and you're talking in the hallway, when you invite people into your home and you can discuss the things that you have been reading and studying and believing. You can write a card to someone, encourage them with truth when they're going through a trial. You can go and visit them and just pray with them and speak truth to them. The third qualification here is the word I used here, the reality of the church. Sometimes we we use the phrase, that's the ideal, but this is the reality. Have you ever heard that or used that? Yeah, that's the ideal of what you want to happen, but this is reality. I'm saying, I use the word here, the reality of the church is unearthly unity. This is reality. The pictures here, this is a real church. Acts 2, Acts 4, this is a church. And this is what God is doing in the church. They didn't just sit around and decide, well, maybe since we believe in Jesus, we should have relationships together. Maybe we should be generous. This is not their idea. This is the reality that God creates in believers who join together as a church. And I think some of you know that reality in our church. I think some of you can say, I have relationships like that. I do not have relationships like that anywhere else in the world, but the people, some of the people I know in church, I have a fellowship in the gospel with. I hope that's true of you. Some of you know the generosity of our church. You know firsthand how someone has been generous to you. You, you know that that is a reality of our church. The, the missionaries who were here a couple weeks ago, Keith and Debbie Jones, they were blown away by the generosity of our church. That is a reality here because God is creating that. Maybe you're thinking, though, are you sure that's the reality here? I've never experienced that. Maybe you don't think these relationships are really unearthly and the generosity is otherworldly. I invite you to come closer in. Come and, and, and see. I want to finish, though, with this idea. Second part here, the reality of the church is inexpressible joy. Using some really big superlative language here. Acts chapter 2 describes the people as having giving and fellowshipping. And down in chapter, chapter 2, verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. 
the unity that they were experiencing in their relationships and their generosity produce a gladness here. I don't think that's just a, a throwaway word. There's a product of this. There's a, a gladness, a joy that is created. But it's, it's part of it is coming from what they're doing, the, the relationships they have, the generosity they're sharing. But it's, it goes deeper than that. We're reminded in 1 Peter 1.8, talking about the beliefs that we hold dear, the truths of the gospel that we all are unified in, says, you believe in him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. When we know those truths, the, the truths of the gospel, and that's what we have in common with each other, there's a, there's a joy that can't be described. It, it, it is something that transcends all other human experiences, all other human relationships. And then it when we act on that, that thing we have in common, and we build relationships that focus on that, and, we, and then we are generous towards each other, that just compounds that joy, just builds, and we have joy in that. Some of you know the joy that it is not just to experience generosity, but the joy it is to give, to give of yourself, give of the things that you have, and meet someone's need. I, I say this because in, in Scripture, sometimes God dangles a carrot in front of us as an incentive, as a motive. And sometimes God motivates us with a stick. And we need that sometimes. But I, I wanted to, to end up here. I want this to be a carrot dangling in front of you. I'm not trying to approach this as a stick to guilt you into better relationships and more giving. If you feel guilty, if you have guilt for, for not having been generous or not investing in relationships on the gospel, there's a right place for that. Let that guilt lead you to repentance. But, but my approach is I really want to dangle this carrot. There is, there is a joy that is inexpressible when you fellowship around the gospel, when you give of yourself because you own things, but you can live like you don't, that these do not matter to you. Some of you know that. Some of you know what it's like to meet someone's needs. Some of you know what it's like to contribute to the church not knowing where that money is going to go and how it's going to meet a need, but trusting that God is going to use that and meet that need, use that to meet a need somewhere. If you don't know that, or if you've forgotten what that tastes like, that joy, I invite you, come in, taste and see. See what the reality of the church is like. So the reality of the church is this. We have unearthly unity and inexpressible joy. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you for the generosity that you have shown us in giving us Jesus Christ. And that creates this body of Christ and that creates the, the relationships that we can have around Christ. And it creates generosity because we don't have to hold on to the things. We have Christ. And that can bring us joy that no one else can experience in this world. God, give us that joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.